We're going to continue in the book of Matthew today in chapter 26, and we find ourselves in the final lap, if I could say it like that, through the book of Matthew. We're coming around the corner, and uh, the end of this book is actually in sight here, and things are about to move into high gear. And this morning, we're going to look at two different scenes in chapter 26 that I think can speak to us uh, where we're at today. One is a scene involving a plot to kill somebody, and the other is a beautiful scene of uh, gratitude and worship. But if you have a Bible, or if you, want to, you have a phone, or if you want to look to the screens, let's look at Matthew 26, and let's start reading in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said. Or there may be a riot among the people. And so this first scene happens in the palace of the high priest. And Jesus has angered them. He's upset them at this point, okay? He's spoken against their ways. He's talked about the destruction of the temple. He's proposing this new way for humans to encounter God that doesn't go according to their systems and their, their, their man-made rules and their religion. And they have literally hit a boiling point here. And it's time for them to take action. And so they plot to kill him. And so this chapter starts what is known as the passion story in Scripture. Now remember, when I use the word passion, I'm not talking about like a strong emotion. Like, man, I'm so passionate about the Toronto Maple Leafs. I watch every game. I wear a jersey. I have their socks, right? I'm passionate, right? That's not what I'm meaning when I use the word passion in the passion story. In reality, cheering for the Leafs that strongly, that's kind of more being misled, right? More than anything, but... Uh, Take the hit, Lee fans. I'm sorry. Uh, but the word passion here, it actually speaks of the sufferings of Jesus. And this is the story of his sufferings. This is his story of his death, which was going to happen on a cross. And up until this point, Jesus had been pointing out that his ultimate destination was the cross. And no one believed him. Or let's be honest, no one wanted to believe him on this. No one wanted to believe him on that. Because everyone had their own ideas of who the Messiah was supposed to be. What God should look like. What God does look like. Who God loves and who God doesn't love. And surely, we don't struggle with this today at all in Christianity, do we? Surely we don't create our own personal Jesus like Depeche Mode once sang anymore, do we? Okay, another sermon, another time probably. But... We are about to see it all play out now. Everything that Jesus had spoken of, everything that he predicted, even the things that those closest to him didn't want to hear is about to happen. It's about to play out. And that's where we're headed. And so just to set us up for the passion story, I want to bring your attention to three different types of people, three kinds of people in the next chapters. And uh, let's look at the first one. The, fir the, the first group of people that we're going to see in this text are the chief priests and the elders of the people. The chief priests and the elders of the people. And they want Jesus dead. Now these are what you would call the religious people. Religious people looked at Jesus and they saw someone who was a friend of sinners, a friend of prostitutes, a drunkard, a man who hung up with all the wrong people, who had rough associations, etc. 
Jesus would have, seen, would have been way too liberal for these guys. He would have seemed like someone who was way too open-minded for them. He was the rule breaker, and he didn't follow their man-made, you know, customs. He, he, he dared to touch lepers and hang out with them. And when the religious people of Jesus' day really cared about themselves only. And they cared about themselves so much, but they didn't care about other people. They didn't care about lost people. And the scripture goes so far as to say, as they would put heavy loads and burdens on people with the law, but they wouldn't lift a finger to help them. And it was the same mindset and religion in this case that we're about to see in the next few chapters of Matthew. We are going to see that it's this type of religious mindset that actually killed Jesus. Religion killed Jesus, and that's the point. Caiaphas, the chief priests and the elders, we want him dead. He's messing with our man-made rules and structures. You see, for the, for, the, for the religious teachers and the high priests, they hang out with people who act like this and talk like this and vote like this. And they hang out with people who are a certain way, who look like them. But Jesus was a rebel. And Jesus shamed them publicly. And he called them out. And he had the audacity to say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Things that they couldn't agree with. And so their minds were made up and they were going to eliminate him. And in that first passage, we, we see them plotting this. The second group of people that we're going to run into in the Passion story is, is Rome and the Roman soldiers. Now, they were a brutal people. They were a strong people. And, and Rome wanted to kill Jesus. The pagans and liberals, the people who don't know anything about God, and they wanted Jesus dead too. That's this group of people. Why, did they, why didn't they like him? Well, because he's too religious. He was way too old school for them in their thinking. And so both of these groups are kind of lost. Both of these groups want to eliminate Jesus. But there's one group of people who don't want him dead. And my hope is, as I wrestle with this, is, Lord, let this be true of me. Let this be true of, our, of, the, of the church. And yet the third group of people seen in verse 5, it says, And they schemed to arrest Jesus and secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. In the first gathering, I got people to look at each other and, and say, say the word the people. So feel free to do that if you want this morning. But the people don't want Jesus dead in this portion of scripture. The people is the group of people that you want to be a part of in this story. The people want him alive. The people are saying, I got no life without Jesus. The last thing I want is for him to die. I need him alive. I need him to guide me. I need him to teach me. I need him to give me life and hope. And I need Jesus. And the invitation of this story is, is that the people in the middle, they, they had nothing to lose. That's the irony in this story. You see, the religious people had power. They had religious power. The people of Rome had power. They had real military and, 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 and strong power in that sense. But the people that we talk about in verse 5 had no power. And they believed in Jesus. Because they said and they knew that they had nothing to hold on to. They had nothing to defend. They had nothing to lose. You see, the starting point for any of us in recognizing that we need Jesus is that we recognize that we're powerless to fix ourselves without him. And this is a gospel principle that's become great, to become great, you become small. You serve to gain Jesus. You lay yourself down. 
And Jesus said it like this. He said, if you want to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you're willing to lay down your life for my sake and for the gospel, you'll gain it. And you'll actually find it. And so the people in verse 5, they're the ones who have nothing to lose. And they wanted Christ. And so they said, don't do, don't do it during the, the festival because the people might riot. The people might get upset. You see, the problem sometimes, I think, is I think we, we, we hold on too tight to some of our things. And sometimes I feel like we feel like we have too much to lose, don't we? You ever thought this in your head? You probably didn't say it out loud. But you thought, you know, Jesus, I love you, but do I really have to use all my time serving those people? Jesus, I love you, but do I really have to use my finances on you and on others? Jesus, I love you, but can I just keep a little bit of my selfishness here? Um, and Jesus says that whoever lays down their life and gives their all to the gospel, those are the ones that are going to find true life. And so the chief priests are angry. And we have a scene here where they begin to plot his death. And someone speaks up and says, this is all good, but don't do it right now. Don't do it right now. Not during the feast or the people may riot. And it's ironic because here is a group of people who have been trying to kill Jesus since he was a baby, if you read back in chapter 1 of Matthew. But now everyone just kind of stops and goes, let's chill. Let's not rush here. But what they fail to accept is that the timing of this isn't their choice. They think they have more power than they really have in this situation. Because in reality, Jesus is going, no, it's my time now. Because this is the Father's will. This is not dependent on man or man's time. But this is all on God's time. And God ain't running according to their schedule, according to your schedule, according to my schedule. But on His and so the chief priests and religious leaders who've been plotting and anticipating this day for some time, they decide to press pause for a moment and hold off. But Jesus has different plans for this Passover. God has different plans and God has different timing here. And Jesus is going to use Passover, which was the ultimate redemption salvation story for this culture. Jesus restructures it all around himself as the true Passover lamb. Are you with me? And he's about to show them in their own language and in ways in which they'll understand. He's about to show them during their most sacred time of the year who he is and what he has come to do. And so let's continue in the passage. The next part of the story. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me. For burial, truly I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so again, we got two very different scenes here. One is in a palace where the distinguished hang, hang out, you know, maybe eating grapes and drinking wine. I don't know, I made that part up, right? But they're in a distinguished palace. But the other part takes place 
in the home of Simon the leper, which should immediately cause the reader to pause for a second, because surely Matthew in his writing here intends to make the contrast in venues on purpose. <laughs> on one hand, the high priest leaders are planning a man's murder by stealth in a palace somewhere, and in the next scene, a woman anoints the same man publicly with devotion in the home of a leper. And anyone in this culture would stop reading at that word leper. While Jesus was reclining at the house of Simon the leper, they would stop reading. Here's a quick note about lepers in this society. Lepers were culturally isolated in, in, in this time. There was a social, social stigma about them. Lepers were banned. They were separated from society. There was such a fear about their incurable disease that in order to protect people from catching it, you got rid of the people who had it. And they were banished out of the community. And they were told to live away from the community. And they were called unclean. And they lived at a distance. They stood at a distance. They lost their families. They lost their relationships. They lost their social status. They lost their, their jobs. And oftentimes, they would be in a field somewhere, off by themselves, and if somebody were to get too close, they would have to yell out the words, unclean, unclean. At some points, they'd have to hit a bell and yell the word unclean. This was the stigma around lepers at the time. They, they stood at a distance. They were cut off from society. And even worse, you probably had religious leaders accusing them of the reason why they're like that is because they sinned or did something wrong. Adding a whole bunch of guilt and unnecessary stuff and untrue stuff unto them. And so it was this messy and ugly scene that was happening. And so the priests and religious leaders, they met in palaces. And Jesus is meeting with a guy known as Simon the leper at his place, at his house. And so we have to ask ourselves the question here. Did Simon still have leprosy? And most scholars conclude that it is very well the case that this Simon is the Simon whom Jesus had cured from leprosy before. And so Matthew gives us this title to awaken us to the reality of who this man was, but who this man now is because of God's power on his life. And notice how Simon will carry that title with him throughout the rest of his life. He was that person with leprosy, right? And it's true of Jesus, time after time, that Jesus hangs out on the fringe. Jesus is with the world's needy. Jesus is with the untouchables, if you will. And that is something that he taught. That's something that he lived. That's something that he models for us, even right up until the final days of his life, as we're seeing here. And in these verses, we have a dramatic scene where this woman approaches Jesus, and he's reclining at the table. And she breaks open a jar of expensive perfume. And you ask yourself, well, how expensive was it? Well, scholars suggest it would cost a year's wages for her. So figure out what you make in a year. And then that is how costly, that is how expensive this bottle of perfume is. Okay? It was worth a lot of money. And she cracks it open. And she begins to pour it on Jesus. In an act of worship. And adoration. All our affection, all our devotion on the feet of Jesus. We just kind of sang about it just a little bit, just a little while ago. But this is a beautiful scene that begins to play out until the disciples decide that what this woman is doing is not good. In fact, it is in fact not good, but to them it is wasteful. And they begin to berate her. And they begin to call her out for wasting such resource here. They even get spiritual about it. Did you notice that in the, in, in the passage? That they start calling out how, you know, she could have taken this money and helped the poor with it. 
and she's just absolutely wasting it here, you know, with the money gained from what this perfume would cost. Imagine how many people they could have helped, and they were annoyed, and they were upset, and we have to wonder, you know, who was it that led the charge in this rebuke? Well, the, the Gospel of John helps us out in this, in chapter 12, verse 4 to 6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so the Gospel of John suggests that it was Judas who led the charge on this rebuke of this woman and what she was doing. And his reasoning was that the money could have been used to help the poor. Which we're going to see his hypocrisy in this in a few moments, right? Apparently he was the kind of guy who used to keep the money and skim off the top anyways. But we're going to see him eventually betray Jesus just for some measly silver. But the fact remains is that the disciple took offense to this. And maybe it was the context of what they just heard in Matthew 25, where Jesus was talking about helping the poor and helping the needy. Remember, that came just before this in the book. But they took offense to it. And they're questioning this woman. And they're questioning her motives. And I have to ask the question, do we ever do this ourselves sometimes? Do we ever have a tendency when we hear about what someone's maybe doing personally or what someone's doing in their ministry, do we ever sometimes put our nose up and rebuke and think to ourselves, well, that's a waste. Why, why are they doing that? Or couldn't they take all that and do this? Do we ever do that? William Barclay helps us in this. He says, if we find ourselves becoming critical of other people, we should stop examining them and start examining ourselves. I like that. Jesus never told us to worry about everyone around you, but he told you to make sure that your own heart was clean. And I think Barclay gives good advice that God calls us to check our own hearts because this woman's heart was motivated not by selfish motives, but by love and by gratitude. And if love motivates your service, if love motivates your work, friends, then it's acceptable to God. In verse 7, Jesus is saying, hey, you know, the poor are here all the time. You can help them whenever you want. And Jesus is in no way speaking against helping the poor here. I want to make that clear. It's who he was. It's what he did. It's what he taught us to do. He just taught on it in the previous chapter, like I mentioned. But he says, you can help the poor anytime. They're always here. And that's a good insight. And that's helpful for us because I think sometimes we exalt ourselves with these dreams of what we would do if only I had that. You ever, you ever played this game before? If I just, you know, if you ever said to yourself, well, if only I had fill in the blank, then I would do fill in the blank. Anyone ever done this before besides me? It keeps us from the if only talks. Like, you know, if only I had a million dollars, I would do this. If only I was a billionaire, I'd do this. If I just didn't have to work anymore, then I'd have more, I'd be able to do this. I'd spend all my time doing it. If I could just have a bit of his or her talent, then man, I could do so much more. And it's real easy to say that because you don't have it, and so you don't have to do it. But you say to yourself, if I had it, then I would do it. But Jesus literally is saying to them, you got the poor with you always, so make sure you go help them. Not speaking against that whatsoever. You see, 
this woman's giving was specific and it was time framed. It was time sensitive. Jesus had spoken of his death openly and she did what she could. And Jesus tells his disciples, you go do what you can do. And don't fill yourself up with these thoughts of, well, if I just had this, then I would do that. If I just had, well, you have it. Now go and help. And this woman is giving it all. She puts Jesus first in the order of worship. And she is giving thanks in a beautiful way as she pours the perfume on him. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on this uh, passage of scripture, says this. He said, Jesus would never sacrifice even one person on the high altar of a principle. Think about that. Write that down. Take that with you. Take a picture of that. I, I found that interesting this week as I was studying in my uh, study and I read this, this statement. I thought, that's amazing, you know? He was always about people. And he always wanted to, you know, put the dignity of a person first. And he wasn't going to sacrifice this woman because the disciples were all of a sudden going to point to a principle in which they were being, or he was being hypocritical about in that sense. And she's showing that love does. This woman shows us that love does extraordinary things. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, whenever um, you clothe someone, you clothe me. Whatever you did to them, you did to me. And when Jesus, when Jesus is associated with our work friends, it's acceptable to him. When it's driven by our love for him, it pleases him. Our love is for God, and it, it leads us to love others. And she'd done all that she could, and it cost her a year of income. And the cost didn't matter to her because she wanted to give it all. And one thing to notice in her example is this, is that you need to give your best to Jesus. We need to give our best to Jesus. Does Jesus receive our best, or are we sometimes offering maybe just the leftovers? And that's a convicting thought for me. But do we give Jesus our best? Of course, you would never say those words as if God here have leftovers, right? Who would say that out loud? No one would say that. No one goes, hey, God, here's what I got left in my day planner today. Take what you can. Just, just kind of fill your name in somewhere. But sometimes I think this, come, this mindset can become evident, not in our words, but, but in our actions and in our behaviors. You know, hey, Jesus, you can have a bit of my time or a bit of my finances or a bit of my talent. But don't ask for too much. But this woman, in our example today, doesn't do that. But she gives Jesus her best, so much so that it starts to annoy even the disciples there. And yet Jesus' response is not one of rebuke or, or, or seeing this as a waste, but Jesus celebrates what this woman has done. And I just want to make a note about woman in the Gospel of Matthew while I'm talking about it. See, a woman began the Christmas story, Mary. A woman now begins the passion story. Traditionally, this is known as Mary of Bethany. That's who we're talking about here traditionally. John's gospel seems to indicate that this Mary is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Where Martha was preparing dinner and getting upset at her sister because she was sitting down spending too much time with Jesus. And Jesus said, well, Mary's chosen what's better. It won't be taken from her. Right? That's who, this, that's who most commentators presume this is. But also, woman will begin the resurrection mission at the tomb. And so the gospel is clear that God has always used women throughout history in his plans and in his work and at pivotal and life-changing times in the story. And so I just want to make that known here as we keep going. That this is not the only uh, point in history where a few dudes were wrong and a woman was right, right? There are some other times when this has happened, so my wife always tells me, okay? And people always tell me, and the ladies in my life always tell me. 
But think about the contrast we see here between this woman and this disciple. It's the condition of their two hearts are on display. Let's just, based on John, presume the woman is Mary and the disciple is Judas. The woman has a heart of gratitude, but the disciple, we learn, has a heart of greed. The woman came with abandon, but the disciple came with an agenda. The woman responded to Jesus' words, but the disciple heard the words and couldn't really understand them. The woman held nothing back, and the disciple, in this case Judas, gave nothing up. Her heart was sold out to Jesus and to his purposes, and the disciple Judas was still about himself and his agenda and his benefits. And this is important, and this is of great significance for us personally, because Scripture states that our actions and our behaviors actually flow from our hearts and the condition of our heart. In Proverbs chapter 4, we read these words in, in verse 23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from your heart. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus was arguing with some religious teachers because they were mad at him for not washing his hands before they ate. And he says this, he says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile them. They were so into their religious traditions that they missed the point that we need to guard our hearts. Imagine if every one of our thoughts and motivations was revealed in our words and actions every day. That what was happening on the inside, everyone outwardly could see. Imagine if that were the case. I think we'd all be pretty motivated to clean up the, the inside at that point. And this woman's heart was revealed in her actions. Much like Judas's heart was revealed in his words and actions... When he betrays Jesus for a few pieces of silver, this woman's love for Jesus is evident in how she holds nothing back in her devotion to God. And this woman, by anointing Jesus with perfume, has done something else given its placing in the passion story on the journey to the cross. Why did she pour perfume all over him? Jesus said, because she is getting me ready for my burial. She was getting him ready for his burial. This is about his approaching death, his death that was going to be for all people. It could very well be that she is the only one who truly understands at this point that he's going to die. You see, everyone else tried to argue with him about it and tried to, tried to change his mind about it. And they fought against such a thought of him dying on the cross. Never, Lord. This will never happen to you. Never, Lord. And they tried to convince Jesus otherwise that this should never happen to you. But here's a woman, Mary, and perhaps... Because she sat at his feet and chose what was better and paid attention, she seemed to have more understanding than even the disciples did on this. And so what does this story teach us? What's the take-home I can give us today? Well, let's go through it really quick. The first point is that following Christ involves sacrifice. The gospel was never simply about our benefits and what we can get from it, but it was always about how we can give to him and how we can be about him and his glory and making him known. You see, Jesus never asks us to follow him to build our own personal kingdoms, but that's so we could be a part of his work in the earth. And true love always costs the giver something. 
And in this woman, we see that she counted the cost. She laid down her life, her agenda, and in this case, even her riches to serve Jesus. You see, this woman's heart's on display, not by what she says, but in what she does. This woman knew that love for Christ cost something, and it was worth it to her. You know, risking who she is and, and what she is, pouring out her offering on him. Why did she do it? Well, because she reasoned that Jesus was worth it. She believed that. She knows that he's her reward. And this woman showed us that following Christ involves sacrifice and laying things down. I think about Matthew 19, where Jesus said this guy found a treasure, buried it in the field, and then went and sold everything he had and bought the field because that's how much he valued what was there. He found something worth losing everything for. And that's what we're seeing in the devotion of this woman at Jesus. Second point. This woman, this story teaches us that love knows no limits. That love knows no limits. Love does extravagant and risky things. You see, there's something different in this woman at a root level. Jesus is her treasure. Jesus is her everything. Extravagant love is rarely understood. Have you ever, as a Christian, been asked by someone who doesn't follow Christ certain questions like, do you ever think that maybe you're going a bit far with this God stuff? Do you really have to give that much of your hard-earned money away? Is this sounding familiar to anyone? Do you really think it's worth praying that much? That whole fasting thing. Why would you, why would you go without food? Do you really think that's... Don't you think you're going overboard? Ever hear that before? Maybe even from Christians, right? You already have enough going on. You know, why do you have to give your time there? Why do you have to do this? The list goes on. But extravagant love does crazy things. When a heart connects with the Savior, the living Savior, the love that flows from that relationship knows no limits. And it only desires to please Jesus with our whole being. The story also teaches us this, and I'm skimming from last year's talk I gave, that gratitude must be expressed. And this is a big one for our relationship with God and for our relationship with one another. Last year I taught on Thanksgiving about the story from Luke about the ten lepers that Jesus healed. And only one of them came back to say thanks to him. And I asked questions. Does this mean that only one of them was thankful? And truthfully, we don't know the answer to that. But it's likely that all of them were thankful for their healing. All ten of them were thankful, but only one returned to express their gratitude to Jesus. And that's the point of the story. And that's a problem if we ever think to ourselves that it's just enough to feel gratitude. Because gratitude can't just be felt, but it must be expressed in our actions and in our words. Because gratitude that is felt but not expressed really can sometimes just communicate to the other person in gratitude. Whether that's the actual case or not, you can mistakenly communicate that by not expressing your gratitude. Are you with me? Unexpressed gratitude will communicate in gratitude. In other words, the, the gratitude and thankfulness that you feel in your heart and that you feel in your mind is also something that can be felt by the other person. But if it's not expressed, what, what will they feel? Well, they may feel as though you're ungrateful, even though you might not be. And this is why in relationships we can get conflicts and all sorts of things on this. You see, the disconnect here lies in the fact that even though you may feel gratitude inwardly, you didn't express it outwardly. And therefore, it can communicate sometimes the opposite of what you actually feel, whether you are aware of it or not. And this is so important for our relationships with each other. 
This is why we could hear from people sometimes thinking, well, you don't appreciate it. Well, of course I do. Well, why didn't you say it? Unexpressed gratitude will communicate in gratitude. Let me give you a few examples. Did you thank your wife or husband this past week? Well, you know, they know I love them. Why do I have to say that? Well, did you thank your mom or your dad this week? Well, you know, that's my mom and dad. They just know how thankful I am for them. You know, they, they, they have to know. Did you thank your coworker who helped you and helped you become successful in something this past week? Well, we're a part of a team. They, they know. They know how grateful I am for them. But do they? Do they? Has it been expressed? You see, the danger here lies in the fact that you can actually feel thankful for someone, and at the same time, by not expressing it, you can actually communicate the opposite. You can communicate rejection, or a lack of thought, or that you take them for granted, or that you just take, 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 take. And back to our story today, this woman expresses her gratitude to Jesus beautifully. She expresses it. There's no doubt in our minds that she loves Jesus after reading this. There's no doubt that Jesus has her heart. And she knows that time here is precious. And she knows that things are about to happen. And she anoints him. And symbolically, this is a burial anointing. And she pours her love on Jesus. And her gratitude is not simply felt, but it's also expressed. Don't settle to simply feel gratitude in your relationships, friends. But make sure to express it. And especially when it comes to loving Jesus. Don't just feel gratitude, but express it in worship, in service, in words, and in actions. Express your gratitude to him today. Which leads us to the last truth I want us to see this morning. And it's this, that this woman did more than was necessary. She really did. She did more than was necessary. And that should speak to us on just that level alone. It served as a reminder that Jesus was going to die no matter how hard people want to fight against this idea. And she was preparing for this. She did more than was necessary. She poured her love out on him. I remember um, being in a business seminar once and they talked about this thing called the MAL, the minimal acceptable level. The minimum acceptable level. Doing just enough to get by, just enough to earning, you know, a satisfactory mark on the, on the paper. But Jesus calls us to more, friends, than just a minimum acceptable level. And this woman was doing more than was necessary. And so maybe, just maybe, that needs to become the desire of my heart. That needs to become the desire of our hearts. That where we worship and live for God, how can we be people who don't just shoot for the minimum acceptable level, but become people who do more than is necessary? When our motivation is Him and our love is Him, it changes everything about us. And so please don't serve Christ and serve others out of a heart of guilt all the time. Or just simple obligation. When love motivates your service, it is acceptable. And it changes everything to God. And so, my question for us today, Thanksgiving, is how can we express our gratitude to Jesus today? How can you express your gratitude to him as we think about Thanksgiving on a weekend like this in Canada? How many of us know that we feel gratitude towards Jesus, and yet we know we fail to express it on a regular basis? 
or maybe even on a daily basis. How many of us know that perhaps we're just a little guilty of holding back our best at times and just offering a little to Christ? Church, don't feel guilty. This isn't about guilt today. But my prayer is that this Thanksgiving weekend, we would be people who truly give thanks on our own to those around us, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our families. But most of all, that we express our thanks to Jesus for all that he has done for us as an expression and action of our gratitude, friends, that we give Jesus our best, that we don't just seek minimum but that we pour our devotion, our hearts, our lives, our gratitude on Jesus. And in doing so, what will happen, what a beautiful thing will happen, is we'll begin to love him more, and in turn, we'll start loving each other more. And this woman modeled for us what it looked like to express our gratitude to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you today uh, that you love us and that you're with us, Lord. And I pray that you just take your word and speak to us, Lord. In whatever way you want, God, we are thankful people today, Lord. And we just say thank you. And we tell you that we love you. And we're just so grateful, Lord God, for all that you've given to us. Help. Thank you, Lord God, for letting us be a part of the work that's happening here. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be a part of the project of the World Vision in the last few weeks. And just thank you, Lord God, for just each person in this room this morning. I pray, God, that you would just help us to become people who express our gratitude more to one another. And Lord, especially to you, we, we are thankful people, Lord. And just show us ways in which we can express that better in all areas of our life. And so be with each one of us, Lord. Help us to celebrate this weekend. Help us to remember what we're thankful for. And Lord, may you be lifted up in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may stand. I'm going to end with a thanksgiving blessing today. Uh, in ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. And those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And so if you'd like a blessing this morning, please just extend your hands. And here it is. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the eyes of your heart be open to all the blessings which surround you. And may this awareness produce a, a harvest of generosity in your spirit. May thankfulness rise up within you, not just during this short season, but day after day from the early morning watch until you retire for the night. May your prayers reflect gratitude while also acknowledging the needs of others whose situations are so drastically different. And so may the thoughts of Jesus fill your mind and may thanksgiving be your response. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving to each one of you. Have a great week. We will see you back here next week.